1: Welcome to a special election episode of Today in Ohio, normally a news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. In election season, we do special episodes in which we talk to the statewide candidates for office in Ohio. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with our chief political correspondent, Seth Richardson, who will conduct the interview. And today, we are talking to Nan Whaley, Democratic candidate for governor of Ohio. Welcome, Nan Whaley
0: thanks good to be on
1: all right well hey
2: thank you for joining again um let's just go ahead and hop right into it so uh you put out a jobs plan and intel has obviously been in the news with kind of being a a, you know a big job creator here but you know most job creation doesn't come in one fell swoop so how do you intend to spur job growth in the state you know especially when you're facing an adversarial legislature assuming you're elected
0: Uh, right i mean i think what was really telling we're happy about the intel announcement It seems that most of these big jobs announcements only comes to one metro from the state, and it's the um, Columbus Metro that seems to be the big winner. And what was really telling to me on that too is I think a leader from every single region texted me or called me and said, where's Toledo's Intel? Where's Youngstown's Intel? Uh, Because they just have not seen the kind of job growth and partnership with the state like the Columbus Metro has. Uh, So yeah, one of the first things we did, I think it was the second policy we put out, was our jobs plan. And it it involves a couple of areas. Uh, First, you know, making sure that one good job's enough for every Ohioan. Too often we see in communities across the state people working too low wage jobs, still having to go to the food bank to make ends meet for their family. I think that's un-American and an Ohioan. The reason why we work is to provide for our families. So we need to raise the wages for everyone, including raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, We also need to invest in renewable energy jobs. We are getting our lunch eaten by Michigan and Pennsylvania. When we look at solar, uh, solar investments and making solar panels, making wind turbines here, those are good-paying manufacturing jobs that we can do right here in Ohio and we should be doing. Uh, and also investing in battery technology, another key po- component, particularly on the I-75 corridor, as cars are changing from needing transmissions and engines into batteries operated, and we're not getting our fair share of those jobs in Ohio either. And then finally, I think we need to invest more in small business. We know that, and I, and I define small business like, not like the federal government does at 500 jobs, but actually at like 50 jobs or less. You know, In Dayton, a company that has 500 jobs is a big company, and uh, we need to make sure that we're growing our own, and small business and entrepreneurship is really key, particularly in small communities like Mansfield or Marietta or Portsmouth, and they just have seen no investment or no partnership in the state on that kind of work so that's pretty much where we are on the job side of it in our plan uh... we think there's huge opportunity there and frankly look the governor has a lot of say in this you know has you know as as when uh... dewine came in there was a changeover at jobs ohio the head of the department of development is a dewine appointee and these are all priorities that the governor can set and really invest in and we just haven't we haven't seen much investment past the columbus metro from this administration
2: but when you talk about, you know, a $15 an hour minimum wage, I'm, I'm guessing that's going to be a non-starter with the Republican legislature. So what, you know, what do you plan to do sort of in that stead if that is such an integral part of your plan to create jobs in the state?
0: Well, I think the other thing that DeWine has not done a great job at is really using the bully pulpit with people. And, you know, I think raising the wage is something that the people of Ohio would be in favor of. And so I think there's opportunities there. We'll clearly have to set a priority around um, what what fight do we take with the people but uh, you know I think we are really interested in people's you know pay going up and their bills going down and so this will be a key one I think for us to really push and organize and look you know look I'm also hoping on redistricting right I'm not giving up hope that they finally do what 73% of Ohioans asked you know demanded by changing the constitution for them to do and if these races are defined and decided in generals, rather than primaries, it's a much different kind of governing uh, situation come 2023.
2: You also talked about investing in, you know, small businesses in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of, you know, Intel came because it got a lot of, you know, corporate incentives, state incentives, right? Uh, at least partially. So what, what oh, do yeah. corporate incentives look like, um, you know, in your, in your uh, administration? What, what sort of form would they take?
0: I mean, I think you're understating that a little bit, Seth, they got $2 billion (laughs) of Ohio taxpayer money for that sucker. So that's quite an investment by Ohioans, right? So I think um, while I'm, I'm, you know, please these are gonna be good paying jobs, we have gotta make sure that they follow through on all of that. I think that's one of the key points that I think is lost a lot from um, the the administration and past administrations uh, at the state house uh... is that making sure that we have you know clawbacks and if folks if uh... big corporations don't do what they promised that ohioans can get their money back Uh, i think that's really important and then, but i do think as i mentioned on the small business part is yeah we gotta get we gotta get more micro with this stuff uh... when it comes to really helping our communities uh... there are multiple regions in the state we are not like indiana where there is just indianapolis and everything else and so uh, the state needs to adjust to make sure that they're really investing in small businesses and having programs uh, that are really about uh, getting getting micro. I think local communities can help out a lot with this in partnership uh, and that we can have ways um, that it doesn't get uh, to the point where it just never gets, gets to the ground, which I, th- I think happens quite a bit here in Ohio.
2: Hmm. Uh, moving on, your, your city tragically experienced a mass shooting, um, you know, and gun laws in the state have only gotten less restrictive since then. Mm -hmm. And the general, the general public has seemed to be okay with this. There hasn't really been this mass outcry or anything. Um, what sorts of realistic gun proposals would you put forth if you were elected and how would you get them through a legislature that has shown, you know, obviously basically zero interest in any kind of gun legislation that doesn't expand, um, you know, gun ownership.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, when we lost uh, nine people and 27 more were injured in Dayton on August 4th, we had, you know, we had a vigil the next day. And um, thousands of Daytonians came to the same street where we had lost our neighbors um, just a few hours earlier. And I know you all saw this when uh, hundreds of Daytonians just organically started chanting, do something. Uh, and Mike DeWine said that he was going to do something. And never in my worst nightmare did I think... Uh, when he said he was going to do something, that he was going to make it worse. And that's what he has done, particularly around st- uh, signing Stand Your Ground, which makes our communities less safe, and um, uh, the permitless conceal carry that he passed, uh, that he signed two weeks ago, with I think he said like one sentence to the press. So, I mean, clearly, he, I don't think he, I think this is my big, big. Uh, issue with DeWine is that he knows better and then does it anyway because it's politically expedient because he's too weak to stand up to the radicals in his party. And you know, look, I know I've, I've, you know, been the mayor for Dayton for eight years, been on city commission for eight years. I'm a compromiser to build consensus, but never have I voted for something or supported something that I just think is terrible. Uh, And I think that's really the issue where he has just completely lost his way because he's terrified of the people in his own party. Um, And he really just wants to hold on to power at all costs. Uh, So yeah, so I think, again, these are opportunities. Again, the redistricting has a huge play in how this could be done, uh, because if we have these fights in generals instead of primaries, nine out of 10 Ohioans agree on universal background checks. It's a good um, vote for people that have a general election, not just a primary election. Uh, And then again, if that's not the case, we'll work with partners to figure a way forward. We looked at putting it on the ballot uh, after 2019. There was not the avenue to get that to happen, but there could be in the future, uh, particularly if we start getting opportunities to have um, a government that actually represents the people of Ohio. We don't have that right now.
2: So one other, you know, obviously we're hopefully on the tail end of a coronavirus pandemic, right?
0: Knock uh, on wood. Right.
2: Right. Yes. Of course. Um, But you know, there the the state didn't exactly fare well during it. Right. There's thirty-seven thousand plus Ohioans who died of COVID. You know, what did what did you learn from the coronavirus pandemic, and um, what what sort of lessons from that do you think you can take to office?
0: Yeah. So I have to say, you know, 2019 was a really tough year for us in Dayton. Right. We had the KKK rally that came in from Indiana. We had um, two days later, the 15 tornadoes that flipped, you know, went through the city. And then uh, 10 weeks later, we had the mass shooting. And so that was quite a bit for uh, our community. And we actually rooted for 2020 to come, which sounds so silly now. Um, And then the pandemic hit us, right? And so I think one of the things um, that, you know, I learned is like there there is, there are lessons and crises and certainly the crises that I went through as a leader in 2019 and 2020 have really, I mean, changed me as a leader and as a human. I mean, I went to, uh, you know, I was past president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors last year and, you know, one of my favorite things is going to new mayor's school and your new mayor in Cleveland, uh, Mayor Bibb was there and the mayor of Cincinnati, the new mayor of Cincinnati was there as well as I think about 20 others. Uh, We were in Boston and I, you know, I I gave this talk on crises and said, look, this job is going to change you. I'm not the same person I was when I became mayor of Dayton, and certainly I'm not even the same person that I ran when I ran for governor in 2017 because of what happened to my community in 2019 and 2020. So I think that all affects your ability to lead and you learn a lot um, going through really tough situations with your community, um, for sure. And COVID, COVID was a, like a marathon instead of a sprint, which the other, the other ones were frankly sprint crises, right? And even the tornadoes and the mass shooting were completely different. One was a physical, you know, without millions of dollars of dam- damage. The shooting was a more emotional. People wanted to do something, but they couldn't take action like after a tornado when you start cleaning stuff up. So each of these crises, I think I've learned uh, a, a whole lot the best lesson was the grit and resilience of my community and just seeing that over and over again. But you definitely learn in, in leading. For COVID, um, you know, I, I, re- I realized just again, the power of public health and what an amazing resource they can be if you follow it and listen and let people do their jobs. Um, I learned again too, just I think watching uh, Amy Acton, that she's probably the best communicator I've ever seen uh, and her incredible communication skills. And uh, and that, frankly, I thought the governor was doing a good job when he let Amy do her job and seeing that um, every day and, and responding to that and like bolstering that. Um, and then, you know, we had again to lead locally because when Amy left, like, <laughs> there was no leadership from the state. And so, you know, Dayton was the first city that had to put a mask mandate on and other cities followed uh, because the state was just too weak to get it done. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think those lessons are lessons that are definitely applicable to the governor's seat. Uh, and, you know, um, it's unfortunate that we all had to go through all of that stuff in 19 and 20, in 2020. But I, I do think it's, you know, those things can, you know, show re- grit and resilience of communities and leaders. And I definitely have learned so much in those two years. And I'm so grateful that the people of Dayton let me lead during our, some of our toughest times.
2: You, should the state end the death penalty?
0: Yes. Uh, I don't think, I mean, we know it's not a deterrent. We know that people are wrongly convicted. Uh, we know that people, uh, particularly it's, it, the, the criminal justice system, is fe- more affects more black uh, Ohioans than white Ohioans because they are over policed, over-sentenced, and overcharged. So this is a system that just does not work. Uh, And frankly, you know, I think, again, DeWine knows that, too, you know, um, and past governors have had it, and they just won't say what's completely obvious.
2: Would you put a moratorium on executions if you were elected?
0: Um, I'd have to look into it, Seth. Like, I I think it should end, but I can't imagine that I would have so much certainty that someone did um, a crime that that is what we should do, and I think it's not effective. It doesn't deter crime. So I don't really understand the taking of a life to why that would make any sense.
2: Well, if you don't think it's effective, why are you hesitant to say you would put a moratorium on it?
0: Well, because I haven't really, like, thought about a moratorium. So, I, you know, this is the first time anybody's asked me that. And so I want to, like, not tell you something I'm not absolutely sure I'm right on. Mm. I have to well, think about what, it for a day, you know?
2: That, that is what we try to do here is ask some questions that maybe haven't been asked. But uh, I appreciate this, I
0: appreciate you letting me have a day to consider it.
2: Yeah. This uh, this next one, though, you you've actually been asked about quite a bit. Um, so, you know, between uh, ECOT, payday lenders, first energy, it's pretty rampant culture of corruption down in Columbus, especially at the State House, Right. You know, you put out a plan about how to address this. Um, but, you know, the legislature doesn't really seem to care much about this issue. And again, if you are elected, uh, you'll be dealing with what is likely going to be a Republican-led legislature. So how do you institute reform in a government body that has no real interest in reforming itself?
0: Well, uh, this is the issue, right? And I think you did a nice job summing it up. You know, this, uh, the FBI calling the Ohio State House the most corrupt state house in the country which frankly takes some work if you look at some of the other state houses. Uh, And we can't get the things we need if we don't do this. And this is like the center fight Uh, because, and that's why it's the first thing I did when I announced is like we can't get to getting folks pay to go up, bills to go down if we don't have a government that is actually responsive to Ohioans and is only responsive to uh, big donors with special interests. And you're right, you know, First Energy is just the most egregious But ECOT four years ago, payday lenders six years ago. I wouldn't be surprised in a few years if we don't do anything. Then it'll be sports gaming or whatever other industry has some self-dealing, right? Uh, So we've got to get this right. Uh, When we did our anti-corruption plan, three of the four things we put forward are things that a governor can do, right? Setting a public accountability commission so the politicians aren't policing themselves. The governor can do that. Making sure that we stop the revolving door between Government and corporations, you can work for one or the other, but you can't be working for both and putting time frames between that, again, a governor can do that. Uh, making everyone in our administration sign an ethics pledge so they know the rules and what's expected of them, and they have to follow them. A governor can do that. The only piece in that in that um, our anti-corruption plan that we need the legislature support is getting transparency in this, um, dark, in this dark money, right? And so... Um, Now, you know, Clyde, Kathleen Clyde put this forward six years ago, Uh, it's not moved. Again, I know I sound like a broken record, this is why redistricting matters so much. Uh, This is very popular with the public, and if we had folks that didn't have just incredibly safe seats and only listened to a couple of people, the redistricting and the extreme districts play into the corruption. A Republican legislature, who I will not name, went to the caucus here about, right after House Bill 6 and First Energy Scandal went down and said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about House Bill six. They'll forget about it just like they forgot about the shooting in Dayton. That is pretty callous and pretty terrible kind of leadership we got going on in the State House. We deserve so much better than that.
2: Do you think that you know these initiatives that you're talking about, I, am, I imagine some of them will probably, face some kind of court challenge, or even like you said, with the transparency on, um, dark money here, you know, I, j- I just personally don't see the legislature really going for that because they benefit so much from dark money. Like the, I think the, the FBI case obviously showed that. And, but even when you're not talking about the corruption side of it, you know, just from an electoral standpoint, they benefit from dark money and having that money spent on their behalf. So how do you, you know, convince, lawmakers that this is the way to go this more transparency when i mean even if you look at the redistricting process right it's supposed to be a transparent process but i think you could argue that it's really been anything but that at this point Well,
0: except when they had redistricting camps that was very transparent then they threw all that out because they didn't like it i hear you look i think um uh that i disagree with you on if we got more fair districts that people would be willing to do the right thing because it's very popular with the public and if we were letting voters decide our elections instead of politicians decide their voters we would actually get much better policy other states have done this this is not something that is you know unique you know that it's never been done by any other state other states have been able to put limitations after being called the most corrupt in the country and people are tired of their of their government not working for them it's why we see Lower voter turnout. It's why we see people not paying attention to this stuff because they don't think it matters because they automatically assume that these guys are going to do whatever they want because of their – and it really is all driven by the fact that they don't really have elections. Uh, We have barely a democracy in this state right now when it comes to the Ohio State House. We got to get redistricting right, and that's why this fight is just so darn important for the future of our state and the livelihood of people in our state.
2: So, you know, corruption has been obviously a, a central point of your candidacy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really really pushing on this sort of ethics and corruption side. But, you know, Dayton certainly isn't immune to corruption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in fact, the, the FBI suspected you of possibly being involved in it. I want to say obviously no charges and there's no investigation according to the ongoing investigation to the FBI. But I, I point that out because, you know, Dayton wasn't necessarily reformed in your time as mayor there. So why do you think you can reform Columbus if Dayton still has similar problems?
0: Well, let me be really clear what happened here. You know, in Dayton, someone uh, I don't know uh, stated a lie about me. The FBI appropriately looked into it, found nothing, and closed the case. And look, I have to say I'm glad that the FBI looks into this stuff both in small communities and big governments like the state because we need to clear it out. Immediately when I found out what happened, I took action. We changed our policies at the, sti- at the city, and we made sure that it would never happen again. Now, let's compare that to what Mike DeWine has done as governor of Ohio. He has done absolutely nothing in the face of the largest bribery scandal in Ohio history. You know, and I think the reason why, Seth, is because he is complicit in it. He got First Energy to fund his campaign, and then he did whatever they wanted including having a billion-dollar bailout paid for by you and me every single month on our utility bills. They wanted their top lobbyist to be the top utility regulator. He made it happen, and even when the guy's house was being raided the day by the FBI, he said he was a great guy. When First Energy settled with the Department of Justice for the largest settlement in American history, they admitted in that settlement that they bribed the guy with $4 million dollars. Like, that is very different. And, I mean, and look, corruption in any scale is terrible. But when we heard about it in Dayton, I disagree with you, and you could come down and see. We took action and changed processes and policies so it could never, ever happen again.
1: Let me interrupt here, because you've been talking a good bit about Mike DeWine, but you're not running against Mike DeWine in the immediate election. You're running against John Cranley. And neither of you seem to be... Competing with each other, you both, both of you, your campaigns are based on pointing out the failings of Mike DeWine. But there are a whole lot of Democrats in our in our listenership that are trying to decide who to vote for in the primary. Could you speak a little bit about why you think you're the better candidate than Mr. Cranley?
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, look, I think coming from Dayton, uh, I know and understand how most communities feel forgotten and ignored because they have been and Dayton is much similar to the rest of the state uh, because we've not had a real partner at the state house. And so I think that that, um, that is something that I can relate to across all 88 counties, which I've visited. We just did our last county this past week uh, in Clinton County in Wilmington. And I, I hear that over and over again. But there are also some specific differences about us too. Uh, I'm the only non-millionaire in this race. Uh, I am from the working class. I am still working class. I've been a public servant. My husband is a public servant. We live in a working class neighborhood. Uh, and I think that gives us a really unique position on how I govern, because I govern on where the issues are that are really affecting regular people, because I'm pretty regular. Uh, this, the second thing I think is, um, it is clear, I don't know if you've noticed this, Chris, but I am a woman. Uh, and uh, while we've never had a woman run for, or be the nominee for governor, we found after the 2018 election, When we got so close, we compared ourselves with other states, particularly Michigan and Pennsylvania. And in the Michigan race, we found that we were underperforming uh, with women voters compared to Michigan Democrats. And that's because they run women, Uh, I think. uh, We as Democrats for the past three decades have been doing the same thing over and over again uh, and expecting a different result. And we need to make sure that we have a different kind of leadership It will actually help us in the general election for electability. Uh, I'm the only candidate in this race that has been pro-choice my entire career. It is very, very personal to me uh, that, that we protect women's health care and access. The governor's seat is going to be the last stop on that fight because I believe Roe will fall, which is hard for me to believe since you know it's been, I was born in 1976, Roe's been in place since 1973. And I tell this to older women, I never thought Roe would actually fall. And they always like, we told you this would happen. They are right, I wish I was right in this because I think this is just a huge deal for our, for women to have you know, opportunities to make their own healthcare decisions and their access to abortion. Uh, Mayor Cranley, um, just a few months before he announced for governor, decided he was pro-choice. He was always vocally not pro-choice until that time. And while I'm happy that he has joined us in allyship, this is too important of a position to have someone in the governor's seat when Roe falls that just recently realized that women should have access to their own health care decisions. And then the last thing is, I mean, you can talk to people across the state. We have very different leadership styles. I'm a consensus-based leader. I'm proud of the leadership that I've provided, my community, and mayors from all across the country. And I think that's why you've seen the mayors that have served with me. They have endorsed me over mayor cranley which is a difficult conversation for them to do but for them to speak out on that i think says a lot about um how people view our leadership styles
2: so you know kind of building off of you're talking about this consensus building and whatnot you know i've said it a couple times but i want to talk about it more broadly you'd be you know if you're elected you would be a democratic governor with likely a republican legislature right which has shown little to no inclination to even working with the current republican governor you know, how would you plan to, you know, govern with the legislature? And, you know, what do you think you could find common ground on with that body?
0: Now, I, Seth, I know you've asked this question now four different ways, so I'll try to be as concise uh, <laughs> as I can on it. But the, the fact of the matter is it really depends on what happens in redistricting, how we attack this. Because if redistricting is and they get fair districts, it will be a completely different kind of Republican Party than we're seeing right now in these extremist districts. And then there will be lots of opportunity, I think, for moderate Republicans to come forward on issues like preschool, something that we were able to do in Dayton by bringing the Chamber of Commerce, which is one of the most conservative chambers in the state, they actually supported our effort for an earnings tax to fund preschool, right? So we've been able to do this in Dayton but again, if it is a legislature that is only concerned about what a very small portion of the state thinks, we will have to use the power of the people and use the bully pulpit to make moves. And probably will have to be more defensive against extreme ideas. And that's my beef with Mike DeWine. He will not even defend extreme ideas. He says what's politically convenient at the time, and then he goes and does whatever they want. He did that on gun safety issues, he did it on COVID. We've seen him do it on redistricting where he said that he was going to take the lead and then said absolutely nothing every time it happens. This is a a play over and over and over again with DeWine. And really, at the very least, we should have a governor that is going to fight off extreme ideas for a state that's not that extreme.
2: Well, you know, we're uh, we're, we're going to be wrapping up here in just a second. But one idea that's been kind of floating out there, uh, you know, with gas prices being so high, um, you know, there's been this renewed talk about either uh, creating a gas tax holiday of sorts, right? Like suspending it for four years or, you know, um, doing away with it entirely. And, I, you know, what, what do you think of that idea, either a suspension of the gas tax or, you know, doing away with it?
0: Well look, I know all Ohioans are hurting right now and we've seen some incredible increases in costs, particularly I would say in utility costs over the winter. Uh, and I think that that is the area I would look at is utility costs and childcare costs specifically. They are so very expensive for working families. Utility costs for particularly 65% of Ohioans um, have compressed natural gas and, as they heat their house and it went up about 40% this past, this past winter. And so if you look at that cost and just how exorbitant that is, and you had to make, folks had to make decisions about heating their house or um, paying their rent or feeding their kids, these are really, really difficult decisions. And so you know, I'd really focus there. We called on DeWine to do something about that. Of course he did nothing um, last, at the beginning of the winter. And then the second is childcare. You know, it costs for a childcare about $14,000 a year, uh, which is about the same as a college tuition. And it's because it is so scarce uh, and because it's just real—it's just really expensive. And at the same time, um, child care providers are very low wage. And so the state has got to get involved in this if we're really serious about upping our workforce and getting the cost and burden off of working families. Um, I think these are the places where we can make real significant advantages uh, in the state that would be uh, stronger for working families and, and make a more significant difference in their bottom line and also um, would help with some of the challenges we're seeing around workforce in Ohio.
1: One more question because we know we're running out of time. The The ticket for the Democrats is looking to be pretty powerful no matter which way it goes. The, the, you have Jennifer Bruner running for Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Um, well, well, Chris, a... I
0: think it's more powerful if I'm on it, but you know it's just a bias <laughs> <that> I have.
1: <laughs> but but, but the, the, the problem the Democrats have seemed to have had over the past years is that the, the messaging isn't getting through to their targets, especially in rural Ohio. The, the, the kind of the backbone of the party has switched to Trump in the past two elections. Do, do you see the, the if you prevail in the primary? Do you see the Democratic candidates, Getting together to try and stress the message about how, under a democratic leadership, their lives could be better because they're not seeing that based on recent elections.
0: Well, look, I think that's why we did the 88 county tour, right? Because I don't think we've been to many of these rural places as Democrats, and I wanted to be emphatic about it. Uh, It's true they're not nearly as dense in a democratic primary. They they don't hold, you know, many of the democratic primary voters like the big. The big six cities do, right? Uh, but it's so important in the general. And I just want to tell you this, my favorite story from from the tour and why I think it matters. You know, I was in Gallia County, and most people in Cleveland don't know where that is. When I ask, tell people about it, it's where Rio Grande is. Uh, Rio Grande is known for where Bob Evans, the Bob Evans farm, is. So of course, we were meeting at the Bob Evans. There were about eighteen folks there. We had a full table. It was in August. Uh, and um, they were short-staffed at the Bob Evans, of course, right? And so we were getting lunch and I was giving my pitch about why I was running for governor. And a man in a booth stands up and he can hear me, the way the tables were set, he could hear me a bit. And he gets up and he yells to the entire, the entire Bob Evans, I've been sitting here for 45 minutes and all I, I haven't gotten my food and all I've had to do is listen to this politics. And you know, the Galia folks, they get embarrassed that they're with me, right? Because they get a little smaller in their seats. And his wife gets up and goes and talks to my staff, which we actually had so many people, staff was at another booth. And she goes over to the staff and she says, uh, are you with them? And they bravely said yes. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, I'm a Republican, but I agree with everything that woman is saying. And so that just brings the point home to me. We have to show up. We have to talk about our message. We, a vote is a vote in Ohio, and we are committed to going after every vote. And I think, look, I mean, yeah, they're mad. Folks in Ohio are mad. They should be. They are not better off because they've had three decades of guys that are more interested in what a self-dealing, you know, lobbyist wants rather than they want what they want in this county. Of course they should be pissed. They are. So I think showing a different way forward and going to those places and talking about what we were about can make a big difference. And that's what my campaign is committed to. It's why I'm in this race. And we're getting great results because we're doing it.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time.
0: Hey, it's great talking to you guys. You guys have a great one, okay?
1: Okay. You've been listening to a special episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Check us out each weekday for a discussion of the news.